Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with the University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from uh, just absolutely beautiful Macomb, Illinois today. 50s. Can you believe it? 50s. March 2nd, and we are in the 50s. And so March is coming in like a lamb. So excited. I mean, I'm already ready to plant my tomatoes, even though it's a little early for that, I understand. Uh, but today we have got a fantastic show. We're going to be talking about soil organic matter cover crops. We have a, a special guest, Dwayne Friend, here. But before we get to Dwayne, we have to introduce our co-host with us every single week. We are joined by Katie Parker, local foods educator in Adams County. Hi, Katie. Hey, Chris. How are things going for you? Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm just super excited. The, the week has started out just on a, on a grand way. There was frost this morning. I let the dog out and like barefoot and my footprints were behind me in the frost and it, it hurt a lot. So um, just standing out there. So great. How about you? Right. Katie? How are you? Maybe you should wear some shoes next time. <laughs> I don't need to wear shoes. <laughs> Gotta keep those feet tough. Right. And who let the dog out? Uh, well, I mean, it's me. That's I was my, just going for the joke. That's my morning chore. Dog letter outer. That is my official title at home. So, and dog feeder and dog poop cleaner upper. Those are all on my business card. Um, so, but and another person who I know carries a, a business card at home is horticulture educator Ken Johnson. Hello, Ken. Hello, Chris and Katie. I think they call this full spring, don't they? Get all your hopes up and then it's going to get cold again. Of course. Like I said, I've already put my tomato seeds out in the ground, so they'll be up soon before you know it, you know, March 2nd in Illinois. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, Ken is in Jacksonville, Illinois, and we have one of Ken's colleagues here on the show. So Ken works in the same office as uh, Dwayne Friend, energy and environment educator with University of Illinois Extension. Dwayne, welcome to the show. You know, I'm glad to be here. I think this is the second or third time that I've been on the podcast and, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm starting to get asked for autographs and, and all of those things. So <laughs> just glad to be here. It gets better each time you're on here, Dwayne. It, it <laughs> does. And people keep asking me like, hey, where's Dwayne? So, you know, they don't even ask me for autographs. So they're, they're <laughs> all about Dwayne, you know, so. Well, we're happy that you're here, Dwayne, to, to talk. We're going to be discussing soil organic matter. We're going to talk cover crops um, and I, I mean, I would say being in Illinois, we have some of the best soils on the planet. And I probably said that several times on this podcast and throughout my career, but I mean, it's, it's true, right, Dwayne? We have some of the best soils here in Illinois on the planet. And it, it's one of those things where a lot of uh, locations you can go to and they'll say the same thing. But actually, for what we grow here in Illinois and throughout the Midwest. Yeah, we have some fantastic soils here. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. I mean, probably one of the biggest ones is that geologically speaking, our, our soils are some of the youngest on the planet since we've had these glaciers and ice ages and this new material that was deposited. And I say new, our, our soils are about 10,000 years old in geologic terms, that's a blink of an eye. Yeah, that's a good so, soil. Mm -hmm. And I always say when I'm talking about soils, uh, and in fact, I mentioned it during the, our master gardener training, I say, you know, as soils age, they become less productive. It's kind of like me, as I get older, I become less productive. <laughs> so it all works together. But, um, you know, with the younger soils, you've got still lots of minerals in there close to the surface in that root zone. We have still 
tremendous amounts of organic matter, which is, is tremendously important for growing things. Uh, and that prairie that a lot of the, the Midwest soils formed under uh, just produced a great basic soil for mm -hmm. trying to grow even the things that we're trying to grow today, whether it's field corn or tomatoes or radishes or wheat or whatever. You know, I, I um, interviewed, uh, this is for a, a different thing for, I think it was McDonough County uh, Museum, Dick Weller. He's an old extension when, back when they were called agents. He's in his mm -hmm. 80s now. Mm -hmm. And he said, I started when, when you grew everything in Illinois. Like Illinois soils can grow anything. He's like, it doesn't matter what it is. You can grow anything here in Illinois. Um, and he's like, that's, and that's when I started working when basically a farm was like everything from the grain, the fruits and vegetables, the meat. I said, you can grow anything here. So he's like, this is the best place to be a farmer. And it's one of those things too, where you, you look at, well, where I grew up in Southern Mason County, it's, it's, it's a little bit different soil than the mm -hmm. rest of the oh, state. Yeah. It's mostly sand. But even at that, uh, you look at what can be grown on there. If you can get a little water to it. Uh, yeah, we've got, we've got a really good growing season. And it looks like over the years, it's going to get, get longer. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we've got the moisture content in most years. And we've got the, the basic fertility there, the pH, just we got a lot of good things going for us. So Dwayne, I, I do want to bring up a recent uh, kind of study. It was a news release that came from University of Massachusetts out of Amherst. Um, it, it, and basically what the study is showing is that across mid, the Midwest, is showing about on average, uh, we have lost about a third of our carbon rich topsoil. Could you explain that a little bit more? Is that what we see here in Illinois? Uh, you know, is, is this uh, an issue that we're facing? Uh, it is an issue. And it's something that, it's not really a new thing. Uh, they're probably just stating it in a slightly different way. But when you, when you look at where our soils were at in Illinois and in the Midwest, now, compared to where they were at back in the, the mid-1800s before mm -hmm. we really started uh, the European style of, of farming and growing things, you look at the organic matter in the soils back at that point. And we probably had over a lot of our really good dark soils, especially in central and northern Illinois, probably 5-6% organic matter. You look at the organic matter that we have in those same soils today, in some cases, we're down to half of that. And in more severe cases, we may be down to a third of that. And uh, there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, one is erosion. You know, we have uh, tilled the soil. And when we have that bare soil, and if there's any slope, a lot of that topsoil, a lot of that A horizon has gotten washed into the streams and it's now down at the Gulf of Mexico. And when that soil gets washed away, that's taking away the organic matter with it. So as we lose more and more of that topsoil, and in some cases we, in, in severe erosion, we've lost all that topsoil already, but where we used to have maybe a good foot and a half, two feet of topsoil, we may only be down to six inches of it in some cases, or maybe less, depending on how severe the erosion has been. The other thing is the, the tillage itself. When we do the tillage, we're adding oxygen into the soil, that increases the microbial activity in there and increases the rate of 
organic matter decomposition. And if you look, and this, this has been done with studies around the world, where tillage has started, you see a very rapid decline in organic matter content. And um, even if you look at a study over on the U of I campus with the Morrow plots, there was a study done from 1900 to I think 1970, somewhere in that, that time frame. But from the, where they started to where they ended, and they did several different rotations, uh, and some they added fertilizer, some they didn't. But in the, the most severe case where they had continuous corn year after year and uh, no fertilizer added, from where they started, they lost almost half of the organic matter content that they started out with. And that was in a 70-year a period. So, um, uh, and I may, my years may be off just a little bit. I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head with it. But in any case, that's, that's over a very short period of time, you know, and we've been tilling these soils for well over 100 to 150 years now in some cases. Now that rapid decline kind of starts leveling off, but as long as we continue to get this erosion and as long as we continue to do intensive tillage, we're still gonna see probably a slow decline of that organic matter content. We've, we've have changed our tillage practices a lot on the ag side uh, in the last 20 or 30 years. We're not fall plowing. We're not completely turning that soil over. So we're not adding as much oxygen. We're not getting as much soil erosion. We're also not getting as much um, microbial decomposition taking place. So it's, it's leveled off some. And in some cases, we can say that maybe it's Maybe it's slightly rising, depending on the, the type of tillage system it's used, being used. But uh, are we ever going to get back to where we were when those prairie soils were originally there? That's, that's probably not going to happen. I mean, the, the main thing that we need to look at today is keeping what we've got. And like I say, we've still got fantastic soils, mm -hmm. uh, but they're probably, well, they aren't as good as they were you know, 100, 150 years ago in terms of the organic matter content. And, um, you know, we're doing some things today that can help reverse that trend or at least stop it. Um, and it, it really depends on what individual actions are and whether they, they feel that they can do those things. So speaking of things we're doing to kind of help conserve soil, uh, one of the things that's thrown around a lot are, are cover crops. So can you explain what cover crops are and how they're different than our cash or forage crops that we typically see in fields. Okay, yeah, so cover crops and cover crops by themselves, if you went back 50 or 60 years, it's kind of one of those things, what goes around comes around. I can remember when I was growing up and now that's, that's indicating my age, <laughs> but my dad did cover crops when I was a, a young lad and uh, it was one of those things where at that back in that stage, they would grow something like clover, um, a legume crop, and then they would plow it under. They called it a green manure crop. But uh, the idea that we're coming back to that today, we're using it in a slightly different way, um, is the idea is still there to improve the soil. We know today that a large part of the benefits of that cover crop is just having that living root system there. The longer you've got a living root system present in the soil, you've got more of that interaction with the, uh, the microbial community and especially that mycorrhizal fungi that's, that's extremely important in terms of overall soil health, 
working with plants and, and those types of things. So the longer we can have that living root system in place, what we're doing is we're benefiting that soil and, um, you know, having that microbial community not be degraded when there's just a fallow situation. There's been several studies that I've looked at where uh, there were plot work being done where they would have a, a subplot that was continuously tilled or kept fallow and another one where uh, cover crops were used and then they would plant such things as sweet corn into it and you could just see exactly where each plot was simply because that fallow area did not have that mycorrhizal fungal population. Uh, it needed to be built back up and the other one where the cover crops were at uh, had a, a much larger microbial community, including the mycorrhizal fungi, and those crops were doing much better in those areas as opposed to the fallow subplots. So it's it's not only the the microbial benefits in terms of the the soil ecology, um, but then you can be talking about things like erosion control. Uh, you can be talking about things like um, adding more uh, fluff to the soil. Uh, especially in terms of adding organic matter into the soil that's going to help kind of keep compaction at bay. Uh, so there's a number of different benefits that you can glean from getting that uh, cover crop in place. Um, in addition to benefits, are there any other things about cover crops? Um, you had mentioned having that living matter in place as well as stopping your erosion. Does it aid in anything um, such as like nutrient uptake or anything throughout the growing season? Yes, it does. It depends on the, the type of uh, cover crop you have. And most crops, most cover crops will do this. But if, for example, you have an excess amount of nutrients in an area, and this may not be quite as much of a concern in a garden or horticulture setting as it would be on a field crop where a lot of extra fertilizer is added. But if you've got still a lot of excess nutrients in place, what happens if it's just soil out there with nothing growing in it? Some th those nutrients a lot of times may get uh, pushed down lower into the root zone, may get put into groundwater, which may eventually get into waterways, streams, mm. and then gets carried off into surface water. With cover crops, and again, having that living root system there, those plants are taking up those excess nutrients and keeping them from moving into our water systems. So when we talk about things like the hypoxic zone down in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, this is one of the added benefits of that. If you can keep that stuff in place, and of course, if you're keeping it in place, then the chances of it just getting recycled so that next year's crop can still use some of those nutrients potentially, then uh, you're, you're also saving yourself some, some money from having to add more nutrients the following year. So there's, there's a lot of added benefits for that as well, not only for the erosion control, you know, the microbial benefits, the organic matter contents, but then the, the nutrient benefit as well. So you know, I'm trying to make it sound like it's uh, uh, the magic beans or whatever, but it, there are a lot of benefits to having those cover crops in place. And if you think about it, you know, what's the natural setting like? You typically have something growing as long as the growing season is there. And so all we're trying to do is mimic nature as much as possible. So Dwayne, we're, we're talking a lot about like agronomic type settings, corn and beans. 
is this something that we can put in our own backyards to help in our gardens? And is it the same same? Absolutely. Process? Yep. And with this, again, you may not be looking as much for erosion control, but there's still a number of benefits that you can have in garden settings. Um, again, having that living root system in place is, is just really, really important because uh, that'll help add that organic matter into the soil. That'll keep those mycorrhizal fungal populations high. So you should have a good boost going into the, uh, the next gardening season or horticulture season, landscape season. And um, depending on what you're wanting to do, you can also use it to, if you do have a little bit of uh, surface compaction in that soil, you can use a type of cover crop that maybe will help break that up. If you're wanting to go to say a, a no-till setting, you could use cover crops to kind of help with weed control. There's numbers of uh, a number of different types of cover crops that will help, for example, with winter annual weed control. Um, if you want to use a cover crop where it overwinters and then grows the following spring, for example, cereal rye, you could either mow that off the following spring or you can do something called crimping where you just lay it down and essentially kill the plant, stop it from growing, but then you have this, this layer of plant mulch there that uh, can be used for, again, season-long weed control, season-long uh, moisture control, and um, those benefits. So a number of different things that can be done in a garden setting just depends on what the individual gardener wants to do with it. I'll, I'll add that I once did cover crops in our McDonough uh, it's a master gardener volunteer garden where they donate produce to local food pantries, the gift garden here. And I put cover crops down underneath all the tomatoes and peppers. And then they came in and they weeded out all of them because they thought it was a bunch of weeds germinating. And so there's uh -huh. like, all these weeds coming up <laughs> I failed to tell them. So if anyone listening or watching has a community garden that they work in, make sure you're communicating that you are putting in um, cover crops intentionally. These are not weeds necessarily growing up. So I just wanted to add that little story in there. It, it is a different, it's, it's trying to get people into a slightly different mindset because I know a lot of folks and I know growing up, yeah, that was, the, that was always the ideal. You wanted to have those potatoes in a row, but you did not want to see anything else growing there because you know, you're thinking while that's growing and it, it is partially true, when you got the your your garden plants in there, you've got these other things that may be taking a little bit of moisture and those kind of things. But again, it really depends on um, where you're wanting to go with it, what what you're wanting to do with those cover crops to make them work. All right. So, what are some other practices um, that can be used, kind of in partnership with cover crops, to promote healthy soils? I am so glad you asked that, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> One of the big things, and you know, I kind of mentioned this at the very beginning, and I know. Uh, and, and it's, you can talk about this again on an agronomic setting or in a garden setting. And again, it's kind of a mindset. You, you like to see that, that nice fresh soil. You like to see that bare soil out there when you start in the spring. So you've got a, you know, a, a new place to, to put in your seed and your plants. But the more you till, the more you're losing organic matter because every time you till, you're adding that oxygen in there and that, that microbial action is just decomposing organic matter at a faster rate. But the other thing with tillage is every time you till, 
you're, you're breaking that soil structure. And soil structure is really vital to keep compaction at bay. If you go in and you till, you know, I'll call it recreational tillage, you've got that new rototiller and you think I, I've got to use it multiple times. I've got to have that seed bed look like flour. You've taken out all of the structure in there. So then you get the first rainfall and that soil turns into concrete. Um, so the less tillage that can be done, the better. And I know some folks, and, and some, depending on what you're wanting to plant, you have to have a, a fairly um, clean seed bed. You've got to have something where you can get good soil, seed soil contacts with, with little seeds. But um, the less tillage that you can do, the better. And not only does, does that help, but if you can leave some of that either, either cover crop residue or other types of residue in place, and this is especially true if you've got any type of slope to that area, you're gonna reduce erosion. Because anytime that raindrop it hits a, say a, a piece of corn stalk from last year, from, from the last year's sweet corn crop or, or whatever, um, it takes the energy out of it, you're gonna reduce the amount of erosion coming off of that. So um, again, all we're trying to do is mimic what happens in the natural world as, as much as possible. Nature has an amazing way of, of making things work and you don't see nature going through and having a bunch of bare soil every year to be able to grow new things. So um, you know, uh, if we can get more to that, that point, the better. Yeah, Dwayne, I, I remember doing landscaping and when we put a new guy on the tiller, say we were prepping a, a yard uh, for a lawn or something, that guy would just beat the heck out of the soil with the tiller and we'd have to like kick him in the butt, say, move, it's don't, you don't want it to turn into <laughs> a fine powder. Um, Cause what we found, if you turn in, if it's over tilled, it forms a crust yeah, on the top absolutely. and then you can't get germination. Yep. And that's, uh, you know, you used to see the same thing in, um, in farm fields where it had been plowed and then they would go in and, and till over that again. And uh, then when they planted, uh, and again, I'm showing, showing my age for this, the first thing that would have to be done after it was planted is you would have to come in and, and use a rotary hoe, a thing with little spikes on it to break up that crust to, uh, to help things get growing. So uh, yeah, it's, we've gotten away from that. And that's a good thing. So, Dwayne, I'm also curious. One more, one more question, but I, I, I'm wondering if I could lean on your your climate side of your brain here for a second. Um, as those microorganisms microorganisms decompose that organic matter and they release that carbon, is that carbon going up into the atmosphere, and is that a climate change contributor? On that side of it, exactly. Okay. And and that was probably something uh, I know you referenced that study, and I. Uh, I did read it earlier, but I don't remember. I think it probably mentions that that exact fact that one of the big contributors to organic matter or to carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere increasing is soil organic matter degradation. And so this is a, a worldwide situation. When that tillage is done, when we lose that organic matter, that's exactly what happens is it goes up as carbon dioxide. And one of the other things too is when tillage occurs, that the type of soil gases that are present 
are different than what's in the atmosphere naturally. You know, naturally we've got 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. In, in a, a soil situation, that amount of carbon dioxide is higher, the amount of oxygen is lower. When you till that soil up though, you release that pent up carbon dioxide that's already in the soil, you add oxygen in there, so then the, the microbes have what they need. And then you have an additional amount of carbon dioxide that gets taken up as those microbes work at a faster rate. So um, yeah, that's a huge amount of carbon dioxide that's added into the uh, uh, atmosphere every year through that. On the other hand, when we're looking at trying to store carbon dioxide, and we're trying to look at something that can be done relatively easily and relatively quickly, if we can add, start adding some of that car, um, carbon back into the soil, that's probably one of the cheapest and easiest routes that we could go to do that and do it again relatively easily and, and relatively cheaply. Well, in addition to being a uh, discussion show where we, we learn all about Dwayne and his, his passion for cover crops and soil organic matter. Um, that's just one half of his brain, by the way, folks. He has also got a whole climate weather side of his brain we're not even looking at today. So, um, but, but Dwayne, <laughs> wondering if you wouldn't mind helping us answer some of these questions that have come into extension, extension offices um, over the last few years. So Dwayne, you got time to answer a few questions. Absolutely. Bring them on. Awesome. So I think uh, we have Katie uh, scheduled to kick us off this week, please. Yeah, so our first question comes from Adams County, and this person has noticed a smell while driving around the country. It looks like there are dead plants in the field. Are they rotting? Uh, I'm going to guess this is probably tillage radish that's out in the field. I would say you're probably correct. Yeah, tillage radish is a, uh, is a cover crop. It's something that's usually planted. Um, Depending on where you're at in the state, normally about the 10th to the 15th of September is about the latest you want to plant it to really get the full benefit from it. But it is not something that overwinters. It usually will die out after about the second or third hard frost. And when it does that, in some cases, it releases some sulfur compounds. And so for the a week or so, as that radish crop is decomposing, yeah, you're going to get a little bit of odiferous smells <laughs> coming off of it. Uh, I, I do think there are some works on varieties that, that kind of limit that, but uh, it's something that should go away again within a week or less. And um, one of the benefits for tillage radish in particular is if you've got some surface compaction, uh, it does kind of help with that because that tuber, if anybody's ever seen a tillage radish, uh, they grow very quickly. They can get uh, the, the radish itself can get you know, 12 inches long within a, a couple of months. And um, so then when they, they decompose and they, they usually decompose very quickly, what you may end up seeing uh, by say November, early December are just these holes in the in the soil where that tillage radish used to be. Now that will those holes will fill in, but it, it kind of acts as a, a little bit of a surface compaction buster. Uh, it's not going to get rid of all of it because if the compaction is really severe, what you'll see is that tillage radish, uh, the top half of it may be completely out of the ground because it just can't push through that. that. But if you'd use it multiple times, it will help 
well, a little bit with that surface compaction over the years. But yeah, that's probably, you're exactly right. That's probably what they're smelling and won't last forever. And uh, hopefully you'll get a wind change and <laughs> it'll go in the other direction. All right. Our next question comes from Knox County. We bought a newly built home, but the developer didn't finish the landscaping and we have a dirt yard. The soil is hard and clay. Uh, what can we do to improve the, improve it for lawn and tree planting? Move. <laughs> um, I'm just joking. A um, couple of different things that, that you could think of. One might be uh, if you do have uh, access to maybe some topsoil uh, to kind of help speed things along, you might they might try to do that. Um, if there isn't access to that, then I would say the next best thing would be to add as much good finished compost as available. Work that into the soil. And, and this is something where, um, you know, you would want to put it on probably several inches thick, work it in, and you may need to continue to do that for multiple years. But uh, you're adding that organic matter in there, which is going to help start uh, kickstart that, that soil in terms of its microbial populations, in terms of its uh, buildup of, of structure, probably would help bring in more earthworms, which would help get the ball rolling as well. Uh, and again, it's not something that you could probably just do one year and say, okay, it's fixed. It's probably something, even if you bring in some topsoil, you know, three to six inches of good topsoil, I would probably still want to add a little bit of uh, good finished compost to it uh, the first year or so. And um, you know, once you do that, you, you may be looking at a five or six or 10 year deal. Um, and um, you four may know uh, more details about this than I do, but I know that there's a pretty well-known couple out in, is it Washington state where they took their backyard and it was essentially the same way. And they added compost and organic matter to it. And over about a 10 year period, they've just now got this very luscious outdoor garden taking place. I don't know, are you guys familiar with that? I, I saw them speak up in, I think it was at a Chicago conference in Schaumburg, uh, the I Landscape conference. And okay. they had the, the husband came and spoke at that, and and that was a very interesting story process they went through. Well, and the the, the one thing I'll add with with the compost is, it, and I you heard me say the word finished compost. You don't want to just go out and add a bunch of yard leaves and things like that and plant into it because if you do that, then you're going to have problems with nitrogen deficiency because the microbes are going to try to break down all those leaves. They're not going to have enough nitrogen to work. So when I mean a finished compost, I mean something that you've had that organic material, it's composted, and it's no longer going through the super active decomposition. So uh, that type of compost is going to be more stable, and is going to going to do a much better benefit in terms of improving that soil than just uh, fresh yard leaves or even fresh vegetable scraps and those kind of things. Those kind of things will work. They're gonna take a lot longer to do it though. Yeah, and two, one thing we uh, we did, we uh, built a new flower bed and we put our, laid our bricks and stuff and then we filled it with uh, not finished compost and some topsoil. And you can see over the years, it's settled quite a bit too. And yeah. so with something like your yard, 
you don't want that necessarily to settle quite as much, especially in different areas of the yard. So definitely yep. that finished compost is important. We've seen a lot of um, landscapers talking about this, like a single shank plow, creating vertical slits in the soil pretty deep. Is that something to, to try or? Um, it might be something to, to look at if you know you've got a lot of compaction. Mm -hmm. um, but is it is it really absolutely necessary? I, yeah, I, I don't see where that would really be a bit of, very big benefit. If it's something where you don't have a lot of topsoil and uh, you've just got a very high clay content soil, maybe that would help break it up a little bit, um, help get moisture down a little bit deeper and those kind of things. Again, if it's being tilled, uh, a lot of times what will happen is you'll fluff it up, but then if you do much tillage, it just compacts back down again. So mm -hmm. it might be something that would have to be done on a yearly basis if, if that is a, a problem present. So our next question comes from Morgan County, and they're asking, can I plant cover crops in the spring before I plant my tomatoes? I, I personally, and, and I'll, I'm going to let you guys kind of talk on this too, because I think you've probably had some experiences in these areas. But if, if you have not done any cover crops before, I think it would be best to hold off on trying to do that. Um, not to say that it can't be done, but cover crops is something, again, that it takes a little bit of experience to figure out what works well for your situation. And um, to do that, uh, you usually have to be at a, a level where you, you know what the plants will do, know how they'll interact with what you have growing. And so, I think it's really better in most cases if you're just starting out to maybe start out with a fall cover crop, something simple. And uh, whether you have one that, that doesn't overwinter or does overwinter, at least in that point, you don't have to worry about how is it going to interact with my, my living plants. And then kind of progress on from there. And I, I'm, again, I'm going to let you guys talk a little bit more about that because maybe some of you have actually done some. Well, Chris, you said that you had done some of, uh, of those types of things. So I'll let you kind of tell us your experiences. I'll say attempted, attempted. They all got pulled <laughs> out of the ground. <laughs> um, but that was the strategy. You know, the tomatoes and peppers are coming to an end that season. Throw some cover crops underneath and they were winter kill type. Um, so what would that have been? Oats and a pea, I think. Um, okay. And so they were winter kill type and we thought, well, the tomatoes and peppers are on their way out. Let's throw some cover crop seed underneath to get those established uh, through, through the fall months. And so that was more of a late summer type seeding then? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. As, as far as the spring seeding, I think you're going to have to be a pretty experienced cover crop person to get that to work. Not to say that it won't work, uh, you know, if they're, if they're wanting to try to keep it in terms of, of weed control and those types of things, I would probably look more at an overwintering crop such as cereal rye or something like that, then terminate that in the spring. And then you've got that, that mulch layer there. Uh, and then uh, one of the things that can be done in between the row is put some weed barrier uh, down and... Uh, let that fry the any weeds that come through. And you don't have to have that down the entire season. If you don't have enough weed fabric to go around, just keep it in a place for about two weeks at a time uh, during warm temperatures. And then 
once you pull that up, pull the anchors out and pull it up and move it down the row, you'll see that it does a really good job of frying those weeds. And typically from what a lot of studies have shown that you, you don't have a, a big flush of weeds come back with that. You may have a little bit of the, the grasses, but uh, for the most part, uh, it does really well. If you've got the, the cover crop mulch there and then you use the weed barrier in conjunction with it. Now that doesn't mean that you're gonna have, won't have to pull out any weeds at all. You're still gonna have to go in between in the rows and do some as well. But um, that's one thing that, that may be a consideration. All right, our next question comes from Cass County. Uh, I read cover crops like buckwheat will spread. Will cover crops end up becoming weeds in my garden? That is a good question. And yeah, there are some cover crops out there that you, you have to be careful about. Uh, buckwheat is one of those that's a very prodigious seed producer. So you do have to be alert for potential future weed issues. Uh, buckwheat is a good pollinator, uh, a good pollinator attractor, but um, you know, if that's something you're concerned about and you don't want to have to mess with it, then, you know, you may not want to want to do that. Another one that's kind of along the same lines is hairy vetch. It's also something that produces a lot of seeds. So you have to be concerned about that one for potential future weed issues. Um, so yeah, there are some out there that they do have some benefits, but then you, you do have to worry about them as well. Uh, one other one that I was going to mention uh, is the uh, somebody had mentioned the uh, ryegrass, I think. Um, that's one that you probably have to be very careful with as well. And um, not out of all the different types of cover crops, ryegrass may not be a, a really good choice, especially in a garden setting. Now, cereal rye, cereal rye and ryegrass are two separate things. Cereal rye is really good. And in fact, that's, that's one of the things that I, if you're just starting out with a cover crop, cereal rye is very easy to use. It's something that overwinters, very winter hardy. You can plant it, you know, seed it even in some cases by mid-November if you have to wait that long and it'll still germinate. Uh, won't get up very tall, but it'll still come on in the spring. Uh, obviously that's one that you would have to terminate in the spring, but you could either mow it, you could crimp it, whatever you want to do with it. I think is cereal rye the one they say you just, just get it before it, uh, as, as the term is heads out, which is goes to flower or seed. Uh, well, actually for, if you're going to crimp it, uh, you want to wait until right at the, the top point where those he seed heads come out. Okay. That's the perfect time for crimping because you've got a, a big enough stem there that you can crimp it and it'll lay down nicely. If you do it before that point, uh, it, it won't crimp well. It'll, you'll have a lot of uh, escapees, plants that'll will try to upright themselves. So right at the first point of, of that seed head forming um, is really a, a, the best time for crimping. Our next question comes from Hancock County. I'm interested in using cover crops in my garden, but I'm concerned about how I will kill it in the spring. I don't want to use herbicide. What is the best way to do this? Okay, depending on uh, what you're wanting to do. Again, if you're if you're not that interested in having it left there as a mulch crop, mowing is the easiest way. You can have uh, set your mower high. You may have to do it several times depending on how thick that material is but um, mowing works really, really well. 
And then again, if you're wanting to have a, a mulch layer there throughout the, the summer, then doing the crimping. And by crimping, all we're talking about there is just going through and basically you're bending that stem down in multiple places so that water transport can no longer go through it. So it essentially uh, kills the plant out. And it doesn't have to be a super expensive type of tool to make this. Uh, I've made one that I've used with uh, uh, some materials from the local hardware store for 16 bucks, where I just got some rope, some um, uh, eye bolts, uh, about uh, two and a half feet of angle iron and a two by four, just slightly longer than that. Put the angle iron on the two by four and put the eye bolts in the two by four and then attach the rope to it. And just, it's a handheld thing. I will tell you that your, your, whichever leg you use, if it's a very big area, you might be a little bit sore the next day after crimping, but uh, it, it works and it works really well. And again, not that expensive to, to do something like that. If you've got a big area, there are garden uh, size uh, crimping units out there that you could hook up to a, a garden tractor or something like that and pull it along if you wanted to. But uh, you know, unless you're you're really doing a big area, that's not necessary. Yeah, I think I've shared on podcasts before, but last year I got out the uh, sled and pulled the kids around in the garden to bend everything over. It didn't work all that well. I had to go in and spray afterwards, but it laid everything down pretty good. Yeah, and everybody had a good time. So <laughs> the kids had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Were you sore the next day? <laughs> <laughs> I kept dumping them out. Because <laughs> sleds don't take tight turns very well. <laughs> All right, our next question comes from Brown County. Um, I've started using cover crops in my garden, but now I have problems with voles. I read that I read that the vegetative cover can provide them with a preferred habitat. What do I do? And and that that's one of the things that uh, is a little bit of a drawback. You can have situations where you get get some critters in there. Uh, the one thing that I would say with voles is voles, the population of voles are kind of a boom and bust cycle. So one year you may have a bunch of them, but then typically what happens is when they have a high population of them, then the predators see all of them and see that there's a, an easy meal to get and the population busts. So it's not something that you would probably have to contend with every single year. In the year that it's present, um, yeah, there's not a whole lot. Voles are very hard to get rid of, um, you know, in terms of, um, things that you could use to, to deter them. Um, so yeah, that's, there are drawbacks in some cases to having those cover crops present. Uh, if it's a, a situation where they can crawl underneath that mulch layer, yeah, they're probably, you know, they've got habitat there that they want. So, um, you know, I'm not going to say that anytime you use cover crops, you're going to have perfect conditions and, and angels and butterflies flying over your head the whole time. So there are things that you have to consider. You could get a pet snake, release it every spring. Well, there yeah, you go. Say. Snakes I are your friend. <laughs> I hear there's a lot of uh, pythons available in Florida. Oh, yeah. It's Bring them up here. They, they good... winter kill too, I hear. So. 
Okay, so our last question for you, Duane, is from McNenna County. And every year they till their garden and the soil settles a little deeper each time. Their garden is now lower than the lot around it. Would cover crops help with keeping the soil from settling when they till? And should they be adding more soil to build that back up? That's a, that's a really good question, a really good point. And if you look at a lot of farm fields, you see the same thing has happened in, in those cases where the fence line is maybe a foot or 18 inches higher than what the field is. And there's a number of different reasons for that. And, and not knowing this particular situation, whether it's on a sloping area where they've had excessive soil erosion, wash some of that topsoil away, I'm guessing a large part of it is simply from the tillage where they've lost a lot of that structure that um, something that would, would provide more pore space in the soil. And so when those individual soil particles just kind of all cement together, then you start having that depressional area created from that. Would cover crops help alleviate that? To a certain extent, I, I would say probably another part of that is again, if you could go back to adding some uh, compost to the soil, adding organic matter back in there, trying to build up that soil structure, uh, you would probably see a big benefit from that uh, where you can fluff that soil back up. Uh, it may take some time to do that. You may not, you probably won't get it back to exactly the same height as what the surrounding area is, at least in, in any time soon. But doing those things, I think you would not only see the, uh, the elevation of it improve a little bit, but I think you'd also see an improvement in the overall garden. Yeah, with uh, in McDonough County, it's so flat. You you do any type of soil disturbance, and it looks like you're trying to put in a swimming pool because it's an elevation change, and it's exciting. <laughs> and then you have uh, ponding water as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now you have a bog. So congratulations. <laughs> uh, well, that was a lot of wonderful information, Dwayne Friend. Uh, energy and environment educator who also has a webinar coming up on pond management. Now that is coming up on March 30th. You can register for that. We can leave a link below in the show notes uh, so folks can learn how to take better care of that, that precious water that we have here in Illinois. So our farm pond. So uh, yeah, Dwayne, and I do, yeah, oh, I do want to mention that it is for farm ponds. So it's not for koi ponds or anything like that. Sometimes we have some people that are uh, a little confused when we start talking about livestock uh, management and those things around it. And they say, well, we don't have that. We have koi. Mm -hmm. Well, restrict your cattle and your koi ponds too. You know, you gotta <laughs> have those access points. <laughs> so the koi don't just grab the cattle and bring them in. Cause I bet you didn't know that koi love to eat cows. <laughs> It's not true. It's not true. <laughs> Only believe half of what oh, you hear. Oh, the on social show. media is going to send that out. <laughs> well, Dwayne, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, hopefully, if anybody has any questions or anything, uh, always feel free to contact me. Fantastic. And we will leave Dwayne's contact information in our show notes as well. The Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson and edited by me, Chris Enroth. A special thanks to our co-hosts with us every single week for the topics of their choosing here. And it just so happens to be soils and cover crops. Uh, so Ken and Katie, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you, Chris. And thank you, Dwayne. We can't wait to have you back. I'll be back on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Dwayne.
Maybe I'll see you, see you again one of these days. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and Chris and Katie, thank you as always. And let's do this again next week. Oh, we will do this again next week. We're going to be joined by Andrew Holsinger, uh, returning guest. Uh, we're going to be talking about a, a series, or not really a series, but a day of webinars that we are going to be doing coming up the Good Growing Garden Day uh, that is coming up. Uh, and Andrew is going to be there with us. And so we're going to talk all about that coming up in March. So, folks, listen to that one. We're going to do a couple more online uh, webinars. So you won't want to miss it. We're talking about native plants, birds, bees, trees. and be great. So, folks, listeners, as always, thanks for doing what you do best. And that is listening. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching and keep on growing.